0: Welcome to Between the Bylines with your host, Roberto
1: Rojas. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Between the Bylines. I'm Roberto Rojas. We continue our conversations with many esteemed members of the media all around the world, and today we'll head straight to London to speak to one of the premier soccer journalists in the world who has bags of experience to his name. So, let's get straight to it. Our eighth guest of this series is a colleague, and over the past two decades he's worked for numerous outlets all around the world, and I'm delighted to have on the line... Gabrielle Marcotti of ESPN. Cab, ciao and benvenuto to Between the Bylines. How are you today?
0: Great. Pleasure to be with you and thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. So firstly, I do have to ask, you know, how has life been for you since the pandemic started? I mean, obviously, we're starting to get into normality, you know, over a year since it started. Obviously, we have major tournaments going on, leagues ending, you know, you know, kind of normality to an extent, but I wanted to ask, what was your daily life, or how has it been for you over the last year, you know, just working in sports media?
0: Uh, well, I mean, obviously, it's been, there have been different issues at different times. I mean, originally, when when kind of everything stopped, and we kind of went uh, down to no sports, everything shut down, um, certainly as far as, you know, the companies I work for, um, ESPN, uh, in the U.S. and um, in Corriere dello Sport in Italy. Uh, it was like, all right, how are we going to fill our pages? You know, What content are we going to come up with? And everybody was kind of filled with that challenge. Then obviously, little by little, the football started up again. Um, it was a bit surreal. Obviously, going to games with, with no fans. Um, people would have experienced that as viewers. Uh, I thought it was interesting how in some countries you know, it became an imperative to add in the fan noise. Uh, in other countries, uh, like in Italy, they decided against it or, you know, they had it as an option. Um, and you kind of muddle through it. Obviously, no travel. A um, big part of what I do is, is seeing people. Um, fortunately, living in London, you know, there's a large part of the football industry, not just as far as England is concerned, but as far as Europe's concerned, that it's based here or still coming through here. Um, so then it became more about, you know, going for, going for walks in the park with, with takeaway coffees, um, which was, which was fine too. You kind of got used to that. Um, but yeah, now little by little, we're returning to normalities are taping us. The European championships are coming up. There will be some fan presence there and, uh, you know, hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think here in the United States, you know, I'm sure you're seeing everything that's going on with like sporting events now starting to open up, obviously with half the country kind of vaccinated in a way, it it feels as if though, yeah, we're getting into the swing of things heading into the summer and not just here, but I think in most of the, the world, at least in in the developed world. So it's, it's good to see. And hopefully that it will continue on heading into the summer and obviously for the rest of the year. So let's go to the beginning of your life. You were obviously born in Italy, but you were raised and, you know, you moved around numerous countries like the U S Poland, Germany, Japan, you know, talk about some of those earliest memories being in those countries and, you know, especially for you, how you first developed a passion for soccer.
0: So, so yeah, so growing up, um, as you mentioned, I, because of my dad's job, uh, we moved around a lot. I left Italy when I was three years old and um, I lived in a bunch of different countries and different cities in three different continents, I guess. And um and so, that brought me in contact with with a whole bunch of different people um and it definitely had pros and cons the cons are obvious in the sense that you know it's harder to to form um of those lasting friendships and relationships when you're on the move every two three years uh although i was still able to do that um the pros are you get used to being abroad you get used to being in you know, living in countries where you don't speak the language um, until you learn the language or learn to get by, um, and it makes you more comfortable in different situations. In terms, in terms of soccer, it's it's, it's weird because it was almost like a a contrarian thing for me in that um, my my dad was was a big boxing fan um, and like tennis wasn't really into soccer at all, so it was almost like I. I, I somehow got to it uh, on my own. Maybe it was a, it was an act of rebellion. Uh, I don't know, um, but it um, it's only something that grew, you know, not without its obstacles. Um, I kind of really discovered the sport in uh, 1982 um, at the World Cup when they had the World Cup in Spain. Um, it was a good time being Italian because obviously Italy won that World Cup, and kind of from that moment onwards. I devoured as much as I could. Um, and it was a challenge because, you know, I was living in Germany at the time. Subsequent to that, um, we moved to the suburbs of New York. Um, you know, hardly really a hotbed of soccer coverage in the mid-80s, as you can imagine. And then after that, we moved to Japan. Um, also not really a soccer uh, place. Um, especially. And on top of that, You know, halfway around the world, at least in terms of time zones and whatever. So, so it was a challenge, but that only made me more determined. You know, there were places to get uh, European uh, magazines and newspapers. You followed it that way. You know, there was some football on television at odd hours. You know, the old um, Club World Championship was always traditionally played in Tokyo, and I remember going to watch in where we've been. I think the fall or the winter of 1985, I went to see Juventus playing Argentinos Juniors, um, you know, for the world title in, in Tokyo. Uh, that was the game where Michel Platini had a, had a fabulous goal disallowed for dangerous play. I don't know how VAR would have felt about it today, but you can still see it on YouTube. And, and I was there that day. So in that sense, it became a bit special.
1: Do you feel, this is actually a good question that kind of got into my mind, do you feel as if though, you know, traveling and being, you know, all around the world kind of helped you in a way shape up your career and be more invested and learn more about the world in a
0: way? Um, I think so. I mean, I I, I think in the end, you know, it's not so much about, um, yeah, there's a lot of people who travel a lot and there's some people who travel a little, but are really invested in knowing about different cultures and, and whatever. And, and if you don't really need to travel, you know, the world's a much smaller place than it once was, you know, a lot of us live in cities that are multicultural and, um, you know, you can learn about those cultures without leaving home in some ways. But I think a big thing is the comfort level. Um, I feel very comfortable when I'm abroad, you know, I've covered world cups in, in Russia where, where, you know, I can't read the street signs. i you know, cover World Cups in in, in South Africa and in Brazil, places like that. And I always very, very quickly felt at home in in whatever neighborhood I was staying in. One thing at every major tournament, I always try to uh, rent uh, a house or an apartment with colleagues. Um, And it kind of becomes your home, you know, for the time that you're there. And again, maybe also because you're renting an apartment as opposed to staying in a hotel. That also kind of forces you, to to feel a little more integrated and i think if you're comfortable then you you become much more aware and you're much more able to absorb the stuff around you and and, you know i was blessed in the sense that growing up i i was made comfortable just because we lived in all these different places
1: yeah no I, i i agree so you ended up getting a bachelor's degree from the University of Penn, Pennsylvania and a master's degree in journalism from, you know, Columbia University in New York. How did those two experiences help shape up your career and, you know, just those early life lessons um, at the start of your career as well?
0: So I was kind of, I mean, I wanted to be a journalist ever since I was a kid. Um, not a sports journalist. Um, I wanted to be one of those guys who... Writes for the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, and you know writes like three really in-depth stories a year, and has a wood-paneled office and and the big expense account and all that stuff. Um, unfortunately, you know, and those jobs no longer exist today, and they probably really stopped existing kind of even before I went to college. Um, I, so one of the reasons I I chose Penn um, for me uh, was. They had a really good daily newspaper there, and they still do, the Daily Pennsylvanian. Um, And I wanted to work at the Daily Pennsylvanian in addition to obviously getting the education um, and whatnot. And I wanted to be in a city. Um, Those things were very important to me. And I feel like I got a great education there. I went on and I took internships every summer, um, as you do. And then I went on to Columbia, and I went there straight. You know, I didn't work before going to school um simply because i kind of wanted to buy time i kind of wanted um a different experience that was actually much more focused on journalism rather than your communications which as the name implies is more like the academic study of communications rather than actual journalism and and at columbia it is very hands-on you know you are you know, you're not studying theory or how masses of people communicate with each other. Um, you're studying uh, day-to-day reporting and writing, and you have a tremendous faculty of very successful journalists who actually go and spend a lot of time on your copy. And as a print journalist, that was something I really valued uh, at the time, and and I'm grateful. I'm grateful I went. Um, in terms of in terms of it helping with my career, I think it certainly did in terms of my writing. um, I haven't really, you know, tapped into the vast alumni network, um, a bit more so with Penn, but less so with Columbia. Um, but, But I certainly feel like, you know, it was a worthwhile experience for me.
1: So working as a freelancer for media outlets in the United Kingdom, the United States and Italy, how are you able to bounce around different countries as a print journalist? You know, what do you feel is the secret in your opinion?
0: Well, I'm not a freelancer anymore. Obviously, I'm, I work full time for for ESPN, um, and but I did freelance for many, many, many years. Um, I think the main secret to for me to, to, to being a to being a freelancer is um, you don't want to be difficult. You know, you want to make things easy for the people who commission. Um, so in other words, it means coming up with ideas that you know they're going to like, um, but like not ideas that they necessarily would have come up, come up with themselves. And it means basic things like, you know, very nuts and bolts delivering clean copy. Um, I, I shouldn't say this, but I, one thing I've learned over the years is that a lot of editors would rather, um, you know, a story that's maybe not, you know, they, they prefer a 7 out of 10 story where the copy is clean, but they can turn it down quickly um, because because the copy's clean and, and well-written, as opposed to a 9 out of 10 story where the copy's a mess. So I've always tried to have a sense of, um, you know, especially in recent years, as, you know, everybody's cut back, a lot of people in desk are are overworked, um, I've always had a sense of trying to serve, you know, the people, the people I was writing for.
1: Obviously, looking into 2021 and looking at how this industry has changed for the better for the worst, how do you currently assess the current state of journalism right now?
0: You're talking about sports in general, or you mean no, like no, the the sports journalism,
1: sports journalism.
0: So. You know, obviously there's been there's been a big evolution, um it's one kind of witness, you know, directly in my lifetime. Um, things like writing you know, like, like the way you write match reports um, has changed. mainly because everybody sees the game, they've seen highlights of the game, I and mean, you can just serve that up. And you gotta you gotta work quicker as well because when I started out um, hands system is locked. Sure. State the password. Yeah. So, can you hang on a second? a second? Yeah, it's all good.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thank God it's a podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Internet password. Please try it <laughs> One, two, one, two. Link system. Bluetooth device. Okay.
1: All right. We'll start Let's again. Try this again. Yep. We'll start All again. Right. Three, two, one, go.
0: So the main thing that's that's changed certainly that I saw in my career is you know when I came in at the end um, there or working in at the very beginning there was no there was no internet or I mean there was but it was really just starting out most people there was silly there was no mobile internet um, you know that's not That's not how people got their news. You know, people actually bought a real-life newspaper the next morning. And, you know, what that meant was just in terms of of production timelines, you know, you would produce copy for the next morning. Um, You know, if you you were covering a game in in the afternoon, you you had your deadline and you met your deadline, and then there was, like, nothing to do until until it hit like you know the newsstand the next morning um, obviously oh obviously there, were, there was no highlights I mean there might have been highlights on TV but, but but very little certainly no on-demand highlights so a big part of your job was telling people what happened um, because in many cases you were you know you were really the first port of call for them um, in, in the following morning now, it's completely different. You know, they know what happened within seconds. Whether they're watching the game or they call up highlights, um, they they will they will have often you um, know received instant analysis as well from from television or from the web. You need to go in and produce your analysis quicker to get to them. I think it's much more about offering context. Um, Bit of st- storytelling become, I think, much more about the why and the how rather than the what. Um, in terms of most reporting, um, I'm talking about obviously news reporting uh, and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so I think in terms of the way we cover sports, that's been one of the that's been one of the main um, most obvious changes. Uh, another thing that's that's changed, I think this for me is one of the single biggest concerns is they um, and I and I have somebody to blame for this. I I blame Alan Rusperger, who was the editor of The Guardian, who came up with this idea more than twenty years ago that all content should be free. And he saw it as a massive democratic process. And so um, where well, everybody, every media organization more or less, had a paywall when they first uh, started out, then because he put all his content for free and a lot of it was very good content, suddenly everybody had to drop paywalls. And what that did was, A, it it, I, it did two things. I and mean, I mean, this is one of my pet peeves. And if I ever meet the guy, I will have no problem slapping him around. Um, <laughs> because first and foremost, obviously, it drove. It's one of the reasons why a lot of media organizations um, you know, we're really hit hard uh, financially and no longer became economically, economically viable. It's not the only one, obviously, local classifieds, there's a million different reasons, right? Um, but that really accelerated it. It contributed to, I think, a vast sort of dumbing down and a preoccupation with traffic and serving up a lot of the, you know, let's give people more of what let's give people more of what they want when maybe sometimes people don't know what they want. And so, you know, let's go back and, you know, in sports, you see that, right? Why do we write endlessly about, you know, Ronaldo and Messi and and Kylian Mbappe? Well, those are the people they know that's what they want, right? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, and the other big problem with dropping paywalls and going to, you know, the ad supported model I just think fundamentally, I have a major democratic problem with it. Um, this guy, Rusperger never stopped to ask himself, is if I want a free and independent press, am I more likely to get it when the press is financed by, you know, six, 10, 12 major advertisers, especially as more and more advertisers become, you know, vast sort of conglomerates whether it's Google or, 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 Facebook or like, you know, all these companies that continually merge and go bigger and bigger, or is it best served by having, you know, say a group of a hundred thousand like-minded people paying 10 bucks a month for their news. Um, I think it's the latter and, you know, and I'm grateful to those news organizations like, like the New York times, the, Wall Street Journal um my old newspaper the Times of London who decided no screw this we're going you know we believe our product is a quality product we believe it's worth paying for we believe we can do more we believe what we do is important and we're not just going to go and you know and give it away for free and so hopefully you know there is more of a trend um towards towards paywalls because I think what we do is important I mean I have to say what I do in sports because it's the toy department, as as we like to call it, but, you know, serious news.
1: Do you feel as well that maybe those that are on social media that want to be journalists on social media, those that have fan channels, you know, that go on YouTube, that kind of thing, also have played an influence on the way that the industry has really been structured?
0: Um, I mean, I think, you know, that's, I think one of the worst things that the industry can do, I mean, you think you can learn from social media and whatnot. I mean, I watch a lot of YouTube myself, but I think ultimately people want authenticity. And when a legacy media organization starts, you know, ripping people off on YouTube, not ripping people off, but, but, you know, following YouTube models, you have to be very careful. Um, because you don't want to lose the authenticity that YouTube brings. So it's one thing to go and, you know, do things the way a major media organization does it. Like, like we do at ESPN, you know, there are content from my podcast, the Gab and Jewel show and from the ESPN FC show is on YouTube. Um, but it is within the context of, of, of the ESPN brand. And it's done the way we would do it on linear TV or in, um, or in ESPN plus, you know, as opposed to a major media organization, you know, telling a guy to get one of those weird circular lights that Instagrammers use and set up in his basement and, and talk like, I, yeah, sure you can do that. But, you know, I think the ones that are successful doing it is because they're authentic and because they started that way. Um, so I certainly, I don't know. I'm generally a bit skeptical about major media organizations using um, social media accounts for anything other than disseminating news. Like I don't know that that's that's their strength, and I don't really know to what degree you know the audience for it is actually there. You know, and I know there's some people who do it and who are funny um, or entertaining and and whatever, Um, but I always kind of think. You know if you lack the authenticity of the original, um, you're always going to be playing catch up.
1: right. So you know you've all you've have done work in radio and broadcasting, and you know how has that been like, and what do you feel is the difference or what do you find to be the differences when switching from print journalism to broadcaster?
0: Um, that's a good question. So I'd almost segment it three ways. Um, you know, print radio stroke podcasts, and and tv um just simply because i find that radio stroke podcast is very different um from television you know television you know and i say this as somebody who does a who does a podcast or cameras on him the whole time but um <laughs> you know tv you got to be concise you know you you never really want to talk for more than 40, 45 seconds at a time on television. Um, it's not as intimate a medium. Uh, although having said that, I probably have because I tend to ramble on, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, a it's just a much faster medium. You know, you're not, I have no trouble putting on a really good podcast or, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Philadelphia sports. So I listen to, you know, my local sports radio, WIP streaming for, for, for hours at a time, I got no problem doing that. I would not sit in front of the television and watch two dudes talk for two hours. You know, it's just not it. Right. Um, So TV talk, TV journalism, and we're talking about, you know, talking heads analysis rather than documentaries or, or whatnot. Um, It's just, there's just a different attention span. Um, involved there, uh, you know. When I see a when I see a YouTube video, and I see that it's you know, more than 10-12 minutes long, it's got to be really good. It's got to look really good for me to devote my time to it. But equally, I have no problem with with an hour long podcast. You know, I just plug it in and go.
1: Right. No, um, I. I agree. I,
0: again, sorry. Just about print. Um, one. I tend to write longer. Um, I think for most, uh, I think part of it, and I'm grateful again to my my bosses at ESPN who who value like they have this metric where they see how many people actually read to the end of a story. Um, and fortunately, most of the time, people tend to read to the end, than to mine. But when people ask me about that. Obviously, you want to, you know, make interesting points and, and write well and, and whatever. Not everybody can do that. But what's helped me tremendously is something that sounds incredibly basic, um, but that I was taught a long time ago, and I think holds true, is I try to, when I reread what I've written, I try to read it in my head, out loud. No, not out loud, but like I try to reread it in my head as if somebody was speaking to me. And I ask myself, you know, does it flow that way? Because I think that's how a lot of people read. And, you know, if it sounds reasonable, if it sounds, can even be conversational, that's not a problem. Um, If you can do that, then I think, you know, you can grab the reader's attention and and more importantly, get the reader to, to, to stick with you.
1: So you've also been a very successful author writing numerous biographies over the years. What usually inspires you to write these kind of books? And, you know, what do you feel is the message that you want to get to your readers who do purchase your
0: books? Yeah, so, I mean, the books that I've written, in every case, somebody's come to me with the idea um, and and asked me to do it. And they've been different because uh, my first book was, um, you know, I ghosted an autobiography. I ghosted a biography of, uh, of Paulo Di Caño. Um, and that was a different challenge because when you're ghosting somebody's autobiography, you need to write in their voice. And obviously he's a very colorful and at times controversial character <laughs> and his voice and the way he talks is, is different from the way I talk. Um, so you have to, so, so that takes an effort, right? That's a very different I think type of, uh, uh, type of skill. Um, my second book was, with Gianluca Viali was different again because there we had the opportunity to go around to thanks to Gianluca Viali. I had access to just about anybody I wanted to in the world of football, from Sir Alex Ferguson to Marcello Lippi to Jose Mourinho to Venger to Fabio Capello. So, I mean, that was a real privilege for me um, because they gave us a lot of their time and there it was almost more of an academic book where, you know, we kind of looked at at different things that we took for granted in the sport um, and kind of tried to delve down to the roots of why things were the way they were. Um, that was a really special experience uh, for me and then you know my last two books were um, you know, they were both unauthorized biographies in the sense that you know I didn't I can work with uh, the subject and um, we're both managers, Fabio Capabro and Claudio Ranieri. Although, you know, when you start writing somebody's biography, even if they're not going to necessarily collaborate with you at first, eventually they both end up doing so maybe not on the record, but off the record because I think people care what, what you're writing about them. Um, that's different because it's, you know, that's, that's more storytelling. And you'll wonder, you know, how much of the story do you want to tell? Who am I writing this for? You know, what parts are there already now? What parts are gonna are gonna add value? Um well fortunately I worked with some very good editors. Books we're, we're, were also very well received.
1: Yeah. No, that that's good and I think it's super important. I think to, to follow that kind of message. I think it's truly important, honestly. So how important is it for you as a journalist and, and for many other journalists, I think, even including myself, to know different languages, to learn different languages? And I say this, obviously, given the fluency in the languages that you speak, Gap.
0: I think it's absolutely critical if you're covering, especially if you're covering football um, or soccer in the U.S., especially in the U.S. I, I'm always shocked by especially younger people who cover the sport don't speak Spanish, for example. Um, it kind of, especially in the U.S., it blows me away, frankly, given the demographic changes that the country's undergoing. Um, but even beyond that, um, if you if you're covering, you know, the Premier League is obviously much more of a much more of a global league. I'm, I'm fortunate that you know I can I speak Italian, German, and English, and I can get by in, in, in Spanish and French. Um, you know, that means I can talk to I can talk to most players in a language that they're comfortable with. And more than that, I can listen to most players in a language that they're comfortable with. And that makes a huge difference because, you know, if you, if you speak to somebody in their second language, they will inevitably, you know, they're, they will inevitably be less subtle. They're, you know, what they're going to say is going to be simpler. Um, their, their range of their expressions is going to be more limited and I think you lose you lose a lot of that. So for me, it's absolutely critical. Um, it's absolutely critical from a reporting side, being able to speak to colleagues and sources from from different countries, and and also just educating yourself. It's a global sport, you know. Looking at media from different countries, um, understanding what they're saying, understanding why a story is big in another part of the world. Um, I think these things are really, really important. And I often wonder why that isn't a bigger part of, I mean, maybe it is. it's been many years, obviously, since um, I went to journalism school. But I often wonder why this isn't necessarily a bigger part of, of how we teach you know, this profession. Um, and I suspect it might have to do with the fact that a lot of the professors themselves are you know, men and women in their 40s and 50s who aren't themselves bilingual and you know, didn't have to deal with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a generational thing. Don't you think?
0: I possibly, um, you know, people tend to teach what they know and, you know, I'm, I'm always just, just bored by it, by, again, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I, I've obviously had the opportunity and it's been a real privilege and it's come easy to me and I'm not saying everybody's got to be able to do it. Um, but you know, it's just funny seeing sometimes media organizations send people all over the world. And, you know, you know, they say like, you know, the reporting consists of working through an interpreter with a fixer and um, yeah, they can describe what they see, but I I don't know. To me, it's just such a valuable weapon. Um, You know, if I, if I ever had any hiring power on somebody, um, I would certainly, you know, and, and it was in my line of work, I would certainly look for the guy, depending on the job, I would say, but I would certainly sort of look more favorably on, you know, on, on the guy or girl who could, who could speak, you know, English and Spanish, I think have to be absolute gimmies. And then if you can speak French or German on top of that, then, or, or another language, then, you know, that, that's that's a big plus.
1: Yeah. It can go a long way. It can go a long way. And I think here in the United States, at least, you know, we're starting to be more accepting of those of bilingual um, fluency and and whatnot. So I think it's a it's a perfect thing. And I think hopefully that's something that maybe the rest of the world can start to finally realize when looking at potential, you know, uh, candidates and whatnot. So I, I completely agree. So before we get to my final segment, I do have to ask and I've asked this to all the previous guests that we've had on this show. For people like myself, for young professionals who want to break into the industry, for those that are starting off and want to be experienced professionals, what kind of advice would you give to those people that are listening?
0: So, as you know, I get this question a lot, and um, I always have, like, so, you know, I have a canned answer, um, but uh, it, it, it's really it's really a three-part answer. Um, one, we've already covered, which is languages. Um if you're in this profession, you need to speak another language. I think it's as simple as that. Um, number two is understand the media industry. Understand what they want. Understand what they're looking for. Um, I think that's vitally important. You know, you are selling a product. You're selling yourself. Do not expect from the time you go in there to kind of be taught everything from scratch. from scratch. It doesn't happen anymore. And understanding what they want. Doesn't mean just giving them what they want. Yeah, you have to do that to a certain degree. It also means giving them what they don't know they want until you pitch it to them. It means coming up with ideas, um, and to do that, a great way to do that, I think, is to consume a lot of media. Uh, not because you're going to necessarily rip off other people's ideas, but because that's how you get inspiration. You know, the way to the way to write really well is to re- read great writing. Um, again, I've been fortunate. Um, second time I name-checked the New Yorker here, but I've been a fan of the New Yorker all my, all my life. I've had a subscription um, since high school. And most of the time, that is really, really great writing and on subjects that aren't related to what I write about. And it's long-form, and so it's different. But it does inform, and it makes for better writing. And equally, if you're in video or, or podcasts, you know, listen to great podcasts understand what makes them good and apply that. Um, and the third thing is, you know, be prepared to deal with rejection um, and deal with it well. And understand that if you don't make it in this profession, um, it's it's not necessarily because you weren't good enough. Uh, it's often because you're not lucky. There's very, very few doors that open and, you know you have to be ready to walk through them. but you have to understand that you know for a lot of people those doors may never open. Its simply because it is a highly, highly highly competitive profession where to get into it you don't just have to be good. you have to be lucky as well. You have to be in the right place at the right time. and you know I think i'm I've been very 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 fortunate um, to be able to, to be given the opportunities that I've been given and you know, to a man or woman, just about everybody I've ever met in this profession at some point has been fortunate with a break of some kind. And you have to be ready when it comes along and not beat yourself up if it never comes along.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's perfect advice. I think it's obviously good to have that consistency more than anything and and just continue to go on to improve yourself in anything. I think that's that's very important, Gavin. I, I really appreciate that. So, obviously, in our last segment, we do have a series of lightning round questions. I'm going to have a set of questions to ask you, and you're going to have to answer it as best as you can, as fast as you can as well. So, Gab, if you're ready, we'll get on to it.
0: All right, lightning round. Let, Here we go.
1: Let's do it. So, obviously, you've been to the United States. The best state that you visited?
0: Uh, Pennsylvania.
1: The best city you
0: visited? Philadelphia. <laughs>
1: All right, we're gonna get out of the the stars and stripes for this one. <laughs> Best nation you visited,
0: excluding my own.
1: Yes, excluding your own.
0: Ooh. And of your and of your origin as well. We did. This United, just to be clear, United Kingdom is not my nation. It's just where <laughs> I live. Okay. Just, just just to be clear, right that. Okay. Um, probably. Hi, Argentina.
1: Okay, yeah, that's that's a that's one out there. A lot of people really like going there. Um, I've never been there in pff, twenty years, but I would love to go back because I have like a, some family there in Buenos Aires. Um, your favorite player growing up, or, or sports athlete in general, as well.
0: Uh, my favorite player growing up was uh, Ricardo Ferri, Inter Milan central defender.
1: Your favorite memory of football soccer
0: my favorite memory uh football's 2006 world cup semi-final italy against germany at the best Fallen stadium in Dortmund. uh you may remember peter's reverse pass to fabio grosso mm-hmm. in injury time um watching pure italian uh, you, you think germany is your biggest rival i know a lot of people think that in football uh, the spanish do or uh, the, the english do it the Dutch do it, um, but you know we actually have the World Cups and they have the World Cups to, to actually show it. So um, uh, yeah, that memory being there in that stadium, surrounded by you know eighty-five thousand Germans, and uh, watching that, and it was absolutely fantastic.
1: If you had to have a cup of coffee with one person in history, living or dead, who would it be?
0: could I mean, be a fictional person. It
1: could be anyone, anyone.
0: And this is one of the, my college. I wrote my college application essay on uh, exact same question. Um, it would be Satan because I <laughs>
1: wait, wait. That that has the yeah, that has to have a good of an explanation there, right? There, you go, go for it.
0: Oh no, simply because I I just struggle to deal with a concept of of evil for for the sake of evil. There's obviously a lot of bad people out there, but. They always have self interest behind it, right? The concept of just doing evil for the sake of doing evil, that's like your whole raison d'etre, and there's no self interest behind it. Um, I just find so, so not human, so out of whack with who we are as human beings, which obviously makes sense. This thing is not my definition, not a human being, so yeah, that's what a big
1: Wow, uh, that's right up there, guy. Wow. I've never—I mean, I—I I would have expected—I don't know, Muhammad Ali or Babe Ruth or something, but Satan. Wow, that's that's up there. That's—I think that's the—that's—I I would love to be a part of that conversation. That's for sure. Um, your favorite sports team outside of soccer?
0: Philadelphia so Eagles.
1: The best stadium that you visited?
0: Hmm. I should say Santiago for obvious reasons, given I was born across the street from there. Um, but I'm going to say, again, the Best Fallen Stadion.
1: It's, uh, it's, or the I,
0: Signally Duna Park, as it's now called.
1: I mean, you can't go against that yellow wall. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable what they do there. All right, so, yeah, it's yeah. definitely up there. I know you're a big ECW fan. Um, so I wanted to ask your favorite ECW personality, not just wrestler, but personality as well.
0: I guess it would have to be oh – yeah, there's so many wrestlers that are type for the top, so I'm just going to go with Paul Heyman instead. And I was – one of my highlights was, was watching him speak here in London. How sad is that? Yeah. But you can actually see me in the audience, which is pretty surreal. <laughs> and people have actually spotted it. It's like, hey, is that you in the audience? I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's 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 remarkable. He was one of I don't know if you saw the tribute he made to the recently passed New Jack, but I think he's he's definitely up there in terms of charisma and whatnot.
0: No, not yet, not yet. Somebody sent it to me, but I I I'm also on a couple um, I'm also on a couple ECW videos out there, a much younger version of me as well. So, (laughs) people haven't spotted them yet.
1: Your your favorite musician growing up.
0: Like musician or band?
1: Musician, band, any musical
0: act. I would uh, probably—I'm uh, dating myself here. I would probably say Guns N' Roses,
1: classic band. I mean, you can't go wrong with them. Honestly, I agree. The best person you've interviewed?
0: Not—not not the best interview, like the actual best. Person. Yeah,
1: just like the person that had the most personality. That you went in there and said, "Oh wow, this was remarkable. This was a great interview. Like the best one out of out of anything."
0: Probably Sir Alex Ferguson.
1: He he is a very charismatic man and I can understand why so many I think um we had Ali Bender on, on the show before. I think he she also said that Sir Alex was one up there as well. So yeah, I, I agree. The best tournament that you've been to. Sports tournament as well.
0: Ooh. I I absolutely loved the Copa America that she won. Um, but for obvious reasons, we are going to have to go to 2006 World Cup in Germany. Sorry. But when you win a World Cup, it's a bit of a game changer.
1: I mean, yeah. Those
0: whose countries have won it in their lifetime will know what I mean.
1: <laughs> TV. You have to pick one. TV, radio, or print?
0: Uh, print.
1: I know you're a big Philadelphia sports fan. And excluding the Eagles, the 76ers, the Flyers, or the Phillies? Sixers. Do you think they'll win the NBA title?
0: No, because Ben Simmons is too much of a wuss. <laughs> and just he can't shoot. So.
1: Love it. Love it. Um, so now we're going into the segment where I'm going to give you a word, and you have to just describe it in one word. So we'll start here with Italy. One word to describe Italy. Uh, home. The United States. Everything. ECW.
0: <laughs> Extreme.
1: Uh, yeah, that—that's that. It's in the name, so it makes sense. The Eagles.
0: Oh. Uh, uh, bleed green.
1: Your family.
0: Oh wow. Um, my heart. The World Cup. Um. Rewarding. London. Uh, Special. TV.
1: Did you say TV? Yes.
0: Um, Present.
1: Podcasting. Escape and finally, what do you want to see next year Italy winning their fifth World Cup or the Eagles winning another Super Bowl
0: Oh you're gonna make me choose are you yes, just one I'm gonna say Italy winning the next World Cup um, because you know we gotta we gotta catch up with Brazil here. <laughs>
1: I mean the it,
0: Eagles have a long way to catch up.
1: It only makes sense. And I think it would be perfect revenge for 70 and 94 as well. So it, it would be the perfect way to say we're finally on par with the best in the world. So, yeah, I completely agree. Gab, again, thank you so much for being a part of this eighth episode of Between the Bylines. It was an absolute blast having you on. All the best in the work that you do. And I hope to speak to you very, very soon.
0: No problem. Pleasure's all mine.
1: So, as always, you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And as always, thank you for listening to Between the Bylines.